welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Luc Messac. He's an emergency medicine physician and a historian of science and medicine. He recently wrote the book, No More to Spend, Neglect and the Construction of Scarcity in Malawi's History of Healthcare. I'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Hey, Max. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm a third-year emergency medicine resident at Brown University, and I wrote this book um, based on my PhD dissertation. I I was an MD-PhD student at UPenn uh, studying the history of medicine before I started residency. And uh, we'll we'll get more into the book, but it was uh, research that I did in Malawi during the course of my uh, PhD years. But these days, I'm in the hospital every day as a resident. Gotcha. And so if you don't mind me asking, what motivated you, one, to study history of science and medicine, and especially um, the history of healthcare in Malawi? Yeah, thanks for the question. I spent some time working uh, and living in uh, Rwanda and Malawi during and after college. Uh, I was working for an organization called Partners in Health. It was one of my professors, Paul Farmer, who had started uh, a few hospitals there. And during that time, I got to understand the historical roots of a lot of the problems I was seeing uh, in colonialism, in neocolonialism, in in economic policies that were um, outside of the control of a lot of the patients I was seeing. So I wanted to understand those problems better. And when I got back to medical school, I signed up for a PhD uh, in history at University of Pennsylvania, uh, where I got to spend a lot more time digging into those issues that I thought my patients uh, were affected by. Mm-hmm. So you start your book with the story of a gentleman named Innocent, young man who eventually loses his leg um, because of basically low resources in the healthcare setting. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I wanted to open the book with this story, which really affected me and, and also highlighted some of the themes of the book about scarcity and how it's constructed rather than inevitable. Uh, Innocent was a young man, uh, Innocent's a pseudonym. He was a young man who happened upon a protest against land alienation. Um, This village was losing its land to a foreign company and a protest erupted. And um, this young man happened uh, upon the protest when he was coming home from school. And he was shot through the leg by the police. And he ended up at a nearby hospital where due to the absence of specialized surgeons, he lost his leg. He had an injury through the popliteal artery, uh, the major artery in the lower leg. And usually that injury, uh, the injury he had would have been salvageable. His leg would have been saved if he had been in Europe or the United States or even South Africa. But because he was in Malawi where there was no training for specialized surgery, vascular surgery, trauma surgery, uh, he lost his leg. And I wanted to highlight, you know, that story because I think it, it begs the question, well, why not? Why were there no trauma surgeons there? Why were there no vascular surgeons there? Why was it a foregone conclusion that innocent would lose his leg from this injury? And to some in public health, it seems quite obvious. I mean, he lives in a poor country. Obviously, there's scarce resources and you have to direct them towards uh, public hygiene. You have to direct them towards primary care. You have to direct them towards um, basic public health interventions. And vascular surgery is way beyond the, the pale in those calculations. Mm-hmm. But I think if you look at the deeper history of 
Malawi, you'll see that that's not the case. There's a, there's a reason why these things don't exist and it's not at all inevitable. Right. So I grew up in Cameroon, so I'm sort of familiar with the terrain of, you know, healthcare, especially like tertiary healthcare and the scarcity as it relates to that. And I think as you, you know, as you say so eloquently in the book, global health researchers or health services researchers kind of just like accept that scarcity uh, is a thing that people in, in places like Malawi and Cameroon and Rwanda are just so, sort of supposed to live with. But scarcity is not natural, right? It is artificial, it's man-made. And so from, from your research, what are some big factors, right? Some obvious ones, one might say just colonization, but there, you know, there are more intricacies to that. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Try to tell what basically happened to Innocent. And you know, some of the things I bring up seem kind of far afield from medicine proper. One of the stories I tell is of a, a railway loan in the 1920s that Malawi's colonial precursor, Miasaland, under the British, was made to take out. The, the government was told by the, the United Kingdom that they would be paying for this railway. And the railway wasn't at all economical. It made no sense to build it there. It was the, the brainchild of this uh, financier named Libert Uri, who just wanted to make uh, a quick buck. And in order to build the railway, which they knew would never, uh, would never work, uh, they, they took out a loan and made the Neosaline government guarantee 7% interest for 25 years. And so when the railway failed, the government was stuck with the bill, this huge mm-hmm. bill that took up a huge portion of its budget. And that was money that could have gone to healthcare. And in fact, a lot of the doctors working there, you know, even colonial doctors, they were saying, this is nonsense. Like we're, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't the most um, uh, social justice oriented doctors you could imagine. They, they had their own, um, you know, racial prejudices, but they had their, they also had professional standards and they knew they weren't meeting any level of their professional standards when they were providing care in the Land. And they said, this is, we know that there's money out there. We know that we're raising taxes. We know that there's, you know, tax revenue from, our exports, and we're not using it on health and education. Mm-hmm. We're using it on things like this railway loan. So, you know, a lot of the history told in the book is is a, a, an inter- interplay between healthcare as it existed and the factors that prevented it from being uh, much better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's just one of the stories, but I think it, it kind of highlights how colonialism and this this construction of scarcity. How, how do you make people believe? How do you come to argue that there is no more to be spent? Uh, to be spent. How do you make that into something natural when it's not at all natural? It sounds like the company. So this is a private company who wanted to make a quick buck, right? Yeah. So yeah. what's really interesting about that specific story, and I don't necessarily think that a lot of people think about it in that way is that you have, you know, private actors, corporations in, uh, you know, in the UK and France and the US that are major sort of like power brokers in the happenings in a lot of uh, lower middle income countries. But typically when people think about neocolonialism, you know, the idea is that, oh, it's, it's just, it's sort of, you know, government relationship. 
but the private companies also play a huge role. Um, so I guess from your perspective, can you sort of help elucidate that, right? Like what is, um, you know, besides a specific story with Malawi, right? How much on a global scale do these large corporations kind of play in shaping the lives of people um, in lower and middle income countries? It's huge. Uh, we're seeing it right now. There's a huge debt crisis going on in uh, the global south. And some of the international financial institutions that you know pushed for debt repayment at all costs in the 70s and 80s are actually now saying you know these debts are unpayable they cannot be repaid you know we we have a global pandemic that is keeping people from working that is shutting down international trade and to expect countries like Malawi and Cameroon to pay interest and principal on these debts at this moment is just not feasible. I mean, the federal, the federal government in the United States is injecting money at an unprecedented pace into our economy to keep us afloat. European governments are doing the same. And yet at the same time, we're demanding, you know, uh, on time repayment of these odious debts from, from uh, countries in the global South. And some of the, Biggest pushback from that is from hedge funds and financial institutions, private financial institutions that are saying, no, we want that money. Mm -hmm. You know, so this, this is, this is what we're facing right now. Malawi can't say on its own, you know, we can't repay this because then they will be essentially blacklisted from international finance and they, mm -hmm. you know, they'll see their interest rates go way up and they, they have no power independently to make this decision. So they're basically at the whim of, of, you know, um, private capital to to be able to fund health and education at this you know essential moment if they want ppe for their healthcare workers if they want ventilators if they want you know hand washing stations that that the who is is telling them to set up they need money mm -hmm. and if they're spending all their uh government revenues repaying these old loans they're not going to be able to do it hmm. uh, it's okay so <laughs> Now that we've sort of like discussed the global landscape, uh, I want to take things back to Malawi for a bit uh, and, you know, looking at the book that you've, uh, you've written. Um, so it seems like the landscape of the, you know, quality of care or quality of healthcare in Malawi had been, had sort of like an undulating, um, uh, I guess, pattern to it. So, in, so like, you know, pre-World pre -World War uh, One when it was Nyasa land, um, things were a certain way and, and, and with, with, with the advent of war and, and advent of technology, um, uh, you'd expect that with more technology, healthcare would have got, gotten like, you know, exponentially better, but it seems like the, the, the fact that they, at Malawi remained a, you know, colonial subject of the UK, um, played a huge oh, had a huge influence in um, the country being able to sort of like have sustainable dignified healthcare. So you say a little bit about you know how that evolution um, you know from like pre-World War World War II technology um, and like you know down to the more recent um, developments. Absolutely. 
some of the biggest advances in medicine were delayed in reaching Miasaland, which is what Malawi was called when it was a, uh, a colony of the UK. Um, there was a, a system of rationing uh, new, uh, new x-ray machines that came out in the late 40s. And the, the way that the UK decided who got them was this committee at the Ministry of Health. And they would get all these letters from, from doctors in Niasaland who would say, we could use an x-ray machine. And uh, instead, the x-ray machines almost all went to the Metropole, almost all went to the UK. Mm -hmm. And the number that went to the Niasaland during that period was in the single digits. You know, they had a, just a few. And so the per capita rate of, of x-ray machines was vastly different between the UK and Niasaland, even as they were preaching, you know, the end of the end of imperialism as we know it. This mm -hmm. was a, a fairly progressive government, the same government that passed the NHS, right? The same government that, that got the UK to single payer was the government that was parceling out these x-ray machines all to the metropole and almost none to the colonies. Mm -hmm. And then later, you know, it, it got even worse because in the 1950s, in the late 1940s, 1950s, you had this huge change in medical care uh, throughout the world, but, you know, new antibiotics coming, uh, new treatments for tuberculosis, for malaria, for uh, bacterial diseases of all kinds. This was the, this was the revolution in medicine, the kinds of things that made us believe in medicine, that it could, that it could cure all sorts of illnesses, especially infectious diseases. But this was also the period when Malawi and what is today Zambia and Zimbabwe were under the rule of this federation led by a white supremacist government whose leader said that the relationship between the white population and the black population should be likened to the relationship between a rider and his horse. So that philosophy governed the, the, the rationing of medical care again. And while there was plenty of money, this was a, this was a government that had money from, from plantations, that had money from uh, industry. The, the, the distribution of resources between segregated hospitals between white hospitals and black hospitals was incredibly unequal. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the new and effective treatments that were widely sought by the white population and the black population uh, were not afforded to the black population. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward to the 1980s, 90s and early 2000s, of course, the AIDS epidemic, you know, made its way through uh, you know, the, the entire world and, and, and particularly, you know, affected African countries. How does the landscape set up by this history of colonization and then neocolonialism end up shaping the, um, the country's uh, approach to, um, to AIDS policy? Yeah, AIDS was the, AIDS was the, one of the worst disasters to ever befall Malawi. You started to see it in the early 1980s. The cases started rising and, and people started dying of this first mysterious disease later identified and um, it, it spread. And while in the United States, you know, you hear stories, horrific stories from the 80s and early 90s. By 1996, Time Magazine was running stories calling 
the therapeutic advances that had been made, you know, quote, the end of AIDS. Mm-hmm. And while we know that's not true in the United States, we have never seen the end of AIDS, especially in, in certain communities. Um, in Malawi, that was, that was just, that was just the beginning. You know, things were, things would continue to get it worse for at least a decade. And this was the moment when I think you saw public health in some ways at, a, at its worst. If you look at the, the literature in esteemed journals like the Lancet, New England Journal, at this time, you see countless invocations of scarce resources. Mm-hmm. There's no money for treatment. You know, we've got to focus on whether we can provide vaccines or latrines because there isn't enough money for both. That is, that is some dismal reasoning, right? And this, this was a moment, we're talking about the late 90s. We're talking about the late 90s when, when you know, this is the efflorescence of globalization. There was, there was plenty of money for global health if we knew where to look. But questions like why is AIDS therapy so prohibitively expensive? Why is it $10,000 per patient per year for this treatment that costs at most a couple hundred dollars mm-hmm. a year to produce? Those were questions that were being asked by AIDS activists in South Africa and the United States and throughout Africa, but were, were not on the lips of too many policymakers. So, you know, this, this, this willingness of public health at large to, to accept the inevitability of scarce resources was really pretty awful during this time. And it took the forceful actions of uh, AIDS activists to, to change this logic, to change this reasoning and to force some more fundamental questions into why AIDS therapy was so expensive, why there were so few resources in developing countries to treat the disease and why foreign aid was so, uh, was so sparse. And it, and it did spark a change. Uh, generic production of AIDS therapy became much more widespread. The price of therapy dropped precipitously. Uh, the things like the Global Fund for AIDS, uh, Tuberculosis and Malaria and the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief became a reality. And so AIDS treatment in Malawi and elsewhere became much more widespread and now Malawi has seen hundreds of thousands of lives saved as a result. But it wouldn't have happened if the reigning uh, logic in public health had had stayed, had stayed put. Mm. So that's interesting, right? Because some other scholars have blamed the issues related to the economies, you know, the sort of like um, struggles of the economies in Malawi and many other um, African uh, countries to quote unquote, as you say in your book, overfunded um, uh, welfare systems, uh, right? When that seems questionable, right? Are where the welfare systems really ever overfunded? Where any you know, because you think about welfare systems are supposed to help, I guess you know, gatekeep or be guardrails to prevent. Um, illness. Um, so one would think there's no way the welfare systems were ever overfunded. Yeah, I'd be hard pressed to find too many examples of overfunded welfare systems in, uh, in poor countries, and particularly Malawi. But this is a claim that you see even in some historical accounts of, of Southern Africa in the 1970s, 
specifically talking about places like Tanzania and Zambia. But all I ask in my introduction to claims like that is where is the evidence? Mm -hmm. you know, we need, if, if you're going to make a claim that the economies of uh, Southern Africa are in the doldrums because of too much healthcare spending, then I really want some evidence because there is tons of literature and tons of data to support uh, vastly different conclusions mm -hmm. about the sources of that immiseration, right? The, the, I, the rise in interest rates during that period that really had nothing to do with, the, with spending on healthcare in Southern Africa. The, uh, the impact of these debts that were taken out often by colonial governments or by post-colonial regimes that were not representative, those too had to do a lot with the, uh, you know, the, the economic state. You know, the fall in commodity prices that, uh, that a lot of countries rely on. Malawi relies on the price of tea and tobacco. Even still, the price of tobacco is one of the overriding factors in the health of Malawi's economy. It's one of the major uh, export crops. Mm -hmm. So you know, if you want to talk about health and education spending in somewhere like Malawi, and I imagine in a place like Cameroon as well, you have to understand a lot more than just what's going on in clinics. You have to understand you know, things like commodity prices and things like international financial markets. That's what's going to tell you uh, what's available. Absolutely. So I see some parallels between some of the thought process um, that, uh, like, you know, this anthropologist Dilger and his uh, a claim related to overfunded welfare systems and some U.S. politicians uh, who are so doggedly opposed to, to policies that would make, you know, that would shape the social determinants of health, you know, in favor of addressing you know, the, so for instance, like the declining life expectancy here in the U.S. and and racial health disparities, and and and, and interestingly enough, or maybe not interestingly, you know, as you were describing the state of hospitals in like Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe before the independence of each individual country, you know, how they were segregated, right? And and the good hospitals were for. Uh, for the white expats, and, and they were getting all the, uh, the better treatments. It's very much similar, right, to the landscape of U.S. hospitals. One, like, you know, pre-Medicare, which played such a huge role in desegregating hospitals. But even now, where uh, we still have a fairly segregated healthcare system when thinking about, um, you know, like, who, who has Medicaid, which hospitals and which clinics or which physicians will, will take your Medicaid insurance. Uh, and so I'm wondering, you know, having studied um, this very different healthcare system and working in the U.S., whether you draw any parallels and whether you see lessons to be learned from the evolution of healthcare in Malawi for the U.S. healthcare system. Absolutely. Some of them are micro lessons about what we can do. You know, I, I point to a lot of problems, but what, what can we do? What can we, when I say we, I mean, I mean doctors, um, all doctors, um, but especially, you know, doctors of color. And the, the lesson of Malawi, I think, is that these scarcities are not inevitable. 
Mm-hmm. And some of the people who have done the most to push against them were Malawian physicians. I point to the story of uh, uh, a doctor named Dr. Chipangwe, who in the late 1970s risked his life to uh, point out the inequities of healthcare for women in his obstetrics hospital. And as a result, got the dictatorial uh, government to build him a new a new hospital wing so he could provide more decent care to mm-hmm. uh, to women in labor. And I think we have a responsibility to do that too. I mean, you saw that during the COVID epidemic. The death rates in New York in, uh, in the outer boroughs were just way higher than in uh, the well-heeled Tony hospitals in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And some of the new data that's come out has shown that nursing ratios were 20 to one for intubated patients wow. in places like Elmhurst, like that's, that is not safe. You had patients with inadequate supervision, inadequate management. A lot of the residents and doctors working in these hospitals have said that this was going on and they were horrified and they, they called for uh, immediate deployment of more resources to their hospitals. And in some ways they were successful. I mean, the, the, the doctors who called for, for more were, were sometimes chastised by their hospital administrations, mm-hmm. but without their brave stands, things could have been even worse. So I think we have a responsibility, you know, at this moment, but in any time to point out disparities in our care. A lot of us who work as residents know full well that we work in public hospitals and community hospitals. And if, depending on the population that that hospital serves, the resources would be vastly different. You know, some, sometimes we're, we're told that a, a public hospital is a great learning environment. Well, why is it a great learning environment? You know, what, is it, what does it mean to be able to, to practice your skills on, uh, on a poor patient and, and not on a rich patient? It's just these, these things that are sometimes unwritten and just hinted at in medical training and in medical medical care if you if you dig a little bit deeper into the history you'll see why in places like philadelphia and new york uh, and a lot of places with large academic medical centers those centers don't have a lot of trust in black communities and hispanic communities and you know we only have to we only have to ask why uh if we want to figure it out so so you know malawi is one place with a particular history and I'm not saying it's a universal history, but it does carry some lessons that I think would uh, would serve as well. I agree. And, you know, people, we're getting ready to apply to residencies now. Um, and a lot of programs will say, you know, oh, one of the beauties of training here is you get to train at this one hospital, which is really fancy, and you get to train at the other one, which is not so fancy. And that's where you really develop independence. That's, that's where you you get to, I don't know, to do more. Do more is like a key, it's almost like a code phrase. You get to do more. And oftentimes, you know, the reason why you get to do more or the reason why you get to see so much more is because the people who go to those hospitals have been living in conditions that are so downtrodden that they're, you know, the pathology has gotten so advanced. And that's, that's why you get to see it there. It can be a little disturbing. So as someone who studies this and who's also a resident in training, how do you 
wrestle or reconcile that tension? I don't know that I have the answer for that. I, it's just something that we, we see. It's not a new problem. Mm-hmm. My, one of my advisors, Philippe Bourgois, wrote a book mm-hmm. in UCSF studying people living with addiction and, and living with them and, and following them through the healthcare system. The book is great. It's called Righteous Dope Fiend. And one of the things he highlights is that some of the care for these, these really deep uh, abscesses that uh, the, the people living with addiction developed uh, were, were cared for at UCSF hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the, the providers who provided the surgical care were, were beginning uh, surgical residents and interns. And they would say, or they, you know, they, they were told that this was a great population to practice their skills on. This was the 90s, so maybe it's changed since then, but it's just some of the language we use in medicine it can be quite blatant, but some of it is more, um, is a little more subterranean, but it's not, it's not that veiled. This, this do more, you can do more mm-hmm. uh, with these folks is, is exactly right. That's, that's stuff we still, we still hear throughout the country. And I don't think it's particular to any one institution, but it's something that we really have to, to push against. I mean, we have to train, right? We have to learn, but we should be learning safely and we should be providing the best, the best care to everyone. Right. So the, not at the expense of the less fortunate. Yeah. So think about, think about who your work, what, what you do as an intern and where mm-hmm. is it in the, is it in the public hospital? Is it in the VA hospital? Is it in the private hospital? Is it in the hospital serving more uh, affluent client, uh, affluent patient population? Think about that when you're, when you're starting residency, because it's still, I think, a widespread, a widespread problem. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, And one last question. If you have um, just one lesson you want every reader from, uh, of your book to take away, what would it be? I want, I want my readers to understand that that scarcity is something that we bring up all the time in medicine and public health, but that it has a history. Mm -hmm. That when we talk about limited resources, when we talk about scarce resources, when we talk about having to make hard choices, are we actually comforting ourselves from asking deeper questions? Are we practicing what, what Jim Kim called machismo public health, where we get to decide who lives and who dies as though we're making some heroic decision? Or are we asking ourselves to, to challenge structures that are much more powerful than the patients sitting in front of us? You know, are we laying the decision at their feet or are we, are we asking why we are faced with this hard choice to begin with? And that, that comes up in Malawi, that comes up in Malawian history, all the time, but I think it also comes up in our practices here every day, especially right now. Well, thank you so much. Um, I absolutely agree um, with with that lesson, even though I haven't read your book entirely just yet. It was a delight to have you on the pod and uh, hope to continue this conversation offline. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.